Welcome back to Brazil Crypto Report. Today I'm joined by Rafael Castaneda, who's the founder of the Costa Crypto Channel and the Costa Guild. We talk about his career trajectory from software engineer and professor to becoming a crypto content creator and educator. We also touch on his techno-philosophical approach to crypto, his predictions for 2024, and so much more. I personally learned a ton during this conversation with Costa, so I encourage you to sit back and take it all in. All right. So I'm joined today by Rafael Castaneda, who's the founder of the Costa Crypto channel. And he received by far the most votes of anyone in our, our 2023 most influential survey. Uh, so Costa, congratulations and uh, great to have you on the show. Hey, it's very nice to be here. Thanks a lot for the invitation. Amazing. Amazing. So uh, you have a super interesting background uh, and I'd, I'd love for you to just take a couple minutes to introduce yourself and uh, talk us through your journey into crypto. Sure. I've started my career as a software engineer, but as a professor also. Like I, I finished my graduation and right after I got after a master thesis in the IMI, which is the Military Institute of Engineering in Brazil. It's like a prestigious school in Brazil. So it was a hard master thesis. And then I jumped right into the uh, academic scenario, like I was a professor. 20 years uh, giving classes on software engineering and software architecture, patterns. Uh, also, my thesis went from artificial intelligence to parallel programming, which is kind of like what we are doing right now in blockchains, distributed and parallel programming. But I did not get into crypto like 20, until 20 years later. Uh, I was also a little, I, I say to everyone that what got me to crypto was the midlife crisis, the 40 crisis, <laughs> because as the years got by, my hair started to fall and I was got fed up with life doing the, <laughs> as a professor, doing the same classes every semester. I was really getting upset about that. Like I have to start the same class all over again. And I was feeling kind of stuck. I was also a public servant in Brazil. Uh, in, a, in a public school, one of the best public schools in Brazil, by the way, in, in technical education in Rio de Janeiro. But I also was a consultant in the software development market. Like I, I worked in, in for big techs. I worked for big companies in Brazil in the telecom scenario, doing back-end programming for the telecom infrastructure, a lot of stuff. But I was also fed up with the, what can we call the Web2 market, like the traditional way that we do software. It's a very, very struggling market, very, very painful to work in this market. So I was looking for a way out, a way to change things in my life. And then in the start of 21, I, I stumbled upon crypto. It's not like I didn't know crypto existed, but I, I did not look in, into it. I was like, ah, it's not crypto stuff, it's magic coins, this Bitcoin thing, it's nothing. But in 21, I, I said, no, now I'm going to look into, into it. And it, it did not took me very long to like have a mental breakdown when I started to learn about Bitcoin. I, I, I kind of um, joke with people that for me, the, the, Bitcoin, the white paper for Bitcoin, it's like child's book. I, I, I read it in 40 minutes into the, the white paper, I'm, oh my God, I understand. <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> what this guy's doing is brilliant. And then I, like, I got I to jump into crypto. And then I started 
studying 21 whole year i was getting my free time to study crypto not only bitcoin but ethereum and other softwares projects studying study studying by the end of 21 i i knew that i was on the same level i was on par with the guys i was following on youtube and i said wow but now if i can understand what they are going to say before they say it now now i have to work with this so in, in 22 I got a job at Mercurius Research, which is a research house in Brazil. And the nice guys there, it's like a young, young guys. Uh, but, but they, they are phoning to me. We got, got together. Then I worked with them. I spent the whole year of 22 as an analyst, blockchain analyst in the research house. Uh, and eventually in 23, I left and got my own project. I left because of what you just said, that I have a, like a kind of a different approach to crypto. I bring the lens of philosophy, sociology, uh, game theory, and I, I like to think of crypto more as a socio-political revolution than particularly an economic revolution or something like, ah, oh, we are just ending the printing machine and we are doing a better money. I don't think that crypto is about a better money. I think that crypto is about better human coordination. But if we talk mm. about human coordination, we have to talk about economics, about social aspects, and about politics as well. Uh, super interesting, and I, I like your approach as well because it is it's it's sort of similar to how I've how I've approached crypto. I guess not I mean, not from like a technical perspective, but it's more of like I, I I enjoy the interdisciplinary nature of it, where it's like a little bit of computer science mixed with a little bit of philosophy, mixed with some political science, mixed with some you know, Austrian school economics, and you kind of mash all these things together and then you get crypto, right? Uh, and it's, and as a result, like the people that you encounter in crypto, uh, these people are all like intellectual Swiss army knives, right? Where it's like, okay, we can talk Austrian economics. We can talk computer science. We can talk political science. We can talk game theory. We can talk kind of all these things that uh, norm are, are in each of themselves are very like complicated, deep subject matters, right? Um, but you you identify as uh, like kind of like a techno techno philosopher, right? You've, I think you use that word to identify to describe yourself. Like, what does that mean? Like, what do you what do you mean by that? This is a very curious history because when I was in Mercurius, by the second half of twenty two, we started broadcasting a podcast. And this podcast was uh, the analysts of Mercurius Research House. I was one of them. And we just chat about the market Friday night. We got a beer. It's very casual, very, very free flow. But uh, as the guys were, were talking about stuff like, well, we have to get 1% more of Matic in our wallets. I was like, guys, perhaps Bitcoin can be a way to solve the instability of electrical grids with renewable <laughs> energy. And the guys were like, what, Casta? What you're talking about, man? What's that? And, and the audience enjoyed it because I was going, I was straying away from the mainstream talk and I was like daydreaming. And, and it got this nickname, like Casta's Daydreaming. And every time <laughs> we got to a new podcast, people were in the chat, Casta, Casta, do a daydream for us. Like, go away. Well, we, well, like we say in Portuguese, we say go tripping. Trip a little, Casta, go tripping in your ideas, in your mind. And I and, and this got growing, growing, growing. So by 23, I knew that that was the seed for something. 
but I just just couldn't call myself a professional daydreaming. Like, what you do, Casta? Oh, I daydream for a living. So I had to come up with a better name. And then I I formulated this name as techno-philosopher, which it means, like, I am a philosopher that thinks about technology. But when we talk technology, most people think of electro-electronic devices, like a smartphone. Oh, this is technology. A laptop is technology. A plane flying in the sky, this is technology. But technology is the, in its roots, it's the study of methods and processes. Anything that is methodological approached can be technologically approached. So language is a technology. The way you think, it's a technology. The way we talk, it's a technology. Anything that can be structured, if it has a method, if it has a process, if it has a technique, then it is technological. So techno-philosophy is when we think about the impact of methods, process, and techniques in the human relations. And that's why we bring crypto to the table, because crypto as a technology has the potential to alter the way we function within one another, how we structure societies, how we make social relations, economical relations, political relations. So I had to come with this name, but right after I came up with this name, I, I did a Google, this name, I, I did not, I was not the first one to use this, this word, techno-philosophy. It has been used before, not in the context I am using. But I also found afterwards that, that Vitalik once said that he was a tech-philosopher. I didn't know he said that before, but uh, it, in some way, it's like Vitalik likes to think. He, he thinks on how we can use technology to change things. And not only how can we use technology to say, bring down the dollar or to uh, end with the, the, the world domination by the corrupted elites and something like that. So we go further away from the crypto anarchist agenda and we think in, on more broader terms, if I can say so. Yeah, that's super interesting, and it that does that does seem like very much your your approach is very much in line with like Vitalik's approach, right? If you read some of Vitalik's writings on his blog, and even 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 today, going back to with back to the white paper and going and fast forwarding to today, like he's he's got this very multidisciplinary approach that he takes, right? And he's not just looking at this in terms of okay, this is Ethereum is going to accomplish like one specific thing, right? Or it's like no, this is a way of kind of redesigning the way that humans and societies operate with each other essentially uh and, and and he's approaching it through all these different these different lenses right so it's, it's yeah. very similar and you, you and it's interesting when i was I was first you know lo, like kind of listening to some interviews with you i was like wow this guy should have been like around during you know 2009 when <laughs> after the white paper came bitcoin white paper came out like this this is the type of guy that would be on you know internet relay chat with satoshi and like hal finney and stuff um because your profile is much more aligned with with like those types of guys that were that were like actually in it for the tech, right? I mean, it's kind of a, a meme, right? Like, oh, I'm just in it for the tech, not the price, yeah. right? But like, but like those guys back then were actually in it for the tech and the values and and kind of the philosophy behind it. And these were the guys that were like giving out bitcoins when they were like a dollar each, just trying to get people to like use them. They weren't really interested in the price, right? Um, so your profile is like much more aligned along lines of like those types of guys. Uh, than um, somebody who came along in in you know the 2021 era, which was usually a lot of those people were just like the people that realized they could make money really quick, right? Yeah. <laughs> because it was sort of free money at that point. Um, but would love for you to talk a bit more about just kind of what are you working on right now? I mean, you've got your you you left Mercurius, you've got your Costa Crypto channel. I know you've got you know you're 
kind of all over the place now, but what are you, how are you spending most of your time right now? Sure. Yes, I, I am. I, I have a lot of requests for going to events and work as a speaker and talk about crypto, just talk about crypto. But what I really do is that I have a community. It's called the Casta Guild or the Casta Guild. We bring the guild mentality because not, not like from the game guilds that we see today, like YGG or something like that. We bring the, the philosophy of guilds from the medieval era. Like, what is a guild? A guild is where people that have the same interests, they live together and they share their day-to-day -day basis and they learn and they grow together and they take care of each other. So if you, like, if you wanted to become like a, a swordsmanship, then you have to live in a guild of swordsmanships. The way to learn something is to live and to breathe along people that want that same thing. So why, why did I go for this approach? Because I just don't want to be another like celebrity or influencer that has its private channel and like you have to pay to get a little more cast in your life. So it's not a VIP club. It's not a paywall to something, including we like we have we have closed studies. But as a philosophy, we as a guild, we have our own philosophy. And one of our mottos is that we don't segregate knowledge. So if we study something inside the guild and we think that it's worth sharing, then I will bring that content out in the open to people that are not paying. And, and that's the most curious thing because that people that pay to be in the guild are okay with that because what they, they share our values. So the first step to joining our, our community is not that you want to pay to have like insights from Casta to make more money. It's that because you want to be part of a movement, you want to be part of something, you want to build something. So we are builders, we are scholars, but we are also investors like one, one of the sections of our guild is dedicated exclusive for strategies for airdrop farming. Because we like, we like to, we like the airdrop mentality where you get people to interact with your protocol. They are like being beta testers. They are giving their time, their effort, and their money. And if you can do a good airdrop for them, then it's like you are doing pay them back. So I am more fond of thinking about good airdrop strategies than like buying uh, colored monkeys on BRC20 inscriptions where just doing a lotto. There is no, there's really no effort going there. You just like, this, this can make money. Yes, let's buy that. Like a lot of lotto tickets. So we also have ways that we are trying to help each other to grow our portfolio and to make money because we all want to escape the current system. We think the current system is doomed to fail. And we also work inside our community in new strategies for human coordination because it is easy to complain about things, right? It's easy to complain, ah, I don't like capitalism, I don't like socialism, I don't like the way the government works. Yes, but all we do is complain. We don't propose new stuff. So inside Casta Guild, we are proposing a new system for human coordination, which we call Valocracy. It's like it's the, the regime of valor, if we can say mm. so. It's a system for human coordination where the, the prominent class of this regime are the people that contribute the most value to the collective. So we have a, 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 a new tokenomics for ourselves. Uh, how can you be a political person in the system? How can you be an economical person in the system? It's a whole new set of ideas and principles to make social organizations. So we are also 
embedding that in the Casta Guild and working. We have a manifesto written on the internet. If you guys want, you can, you can check it. It's valocracy.xyz. So it's all in English as well, because I, I think this is not only for a Brazilian audience. This is a, a broader spectrum. So that's the kind of stuff we do. We, we tinker with things, we think together, and we try to build new stuff. Who are the types of people that 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 are are part of this guild? Like, what what are the what's the profile of the of people that would sign up and become a member of something like this? Yes, it, it's very it's very like let's say very miscellaneous, very 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 heterogeneous. But they are very intellectual people. That that I can say so. They're people that are not like brainwashed by by any ideological profile by any political spectrum they are people that tend to think by themselves and i was quite surprised that it really found that so many people because when we look at the world at least from my point of view if i'm looking be it from the brazilian scenario from the north american scenario from the global scenario uh, our my impression is that we are increasingly brainwashing a greater number of people as the world becomes ruled by algorithms, we become algorithms ourselves. This is a very, very daunting scenario, but it's so, so tangible, so real for us. We behave like algorithms. So I was thinking, man, I'm going to bring forth a product, a service that one of the prerequisites to, to join this product is that you don't want to be brainwashed. How many people in the world nowadays don't want to be brainwashed really think about that and i was quite surprised because we have 400 members right now of course we have bigger communities in brazil that make a lot of money a lot of more money we have other influencers in brazil that are bigger than i am and that also make a lot more of more money but none of them bring this to the table like guys let's that's that's just breathe for a moment Let's take a step back and let's think about ourselves as human beings. That's that's something really hard to ask for the people of nowadays. We are being, uh, we are struggling in economical dimensions, in, in social and political dimensions. We are all very stressed. The world is boiling in stress. So when you want to take a step back and ask for people to just breathe and think about themselves and technology, to find 400 people that are willing to do that and to join together for me it's very it's very rewarding it, it fulfills me when i when i think about that yeah yeah it's super interesting when you can find i mean it shows the power of, of finding even even a, a like a, a community that doesn't necessarily need to be large but a community of like a couple of hundred people who are like super passionate and super mission aligned for example you could say um i mean i always i always think back to i mean i've as I'm an American, obviously, so like I, you know, brainwashed by American history, I guess. But, but thinking about like the like the the pilgrims that came over from England to escape religious persecution in England, and they had this like really harrowing journey to arrive, you know, in New in in New England, and then a lot of them, like most of them, died within the first year, or whatever. But it was like it was like this very like dedicated small group of people that were like really determined, uh, very like mission aligned essentially, and they they you know and it and it it ended up you know kind of becoming like the seed of a new country basically um yeah. so i i find it really interesting just just along those lines like the, the power of having like a small but just really like cohesive dedicated community and also just people that are that are open to understanding that like like the way you put it is i mean it's 
you know, that we're all just becoming algorithms. I mean, it's, it's like, it kind of sounds like a joke, but it's true, right? It's like, we're kind of just a product of our Twitter feed or our Instagram feed. And, and I had, I had a, a couple of years ago, I had sort of a red pill moment when somebody was explaining to me, like, look, like basically all your opinions you have about anything have been assigned to you by somebody like by, by, you know, the TV or by media. I'm like, I'm like, no way, that's not true. I'm a free thinker. And then you start yeah. realizing like, oh yeah, for the most part, like most, my opinion usually just defaults to like whatever influencer I follow or, or whatever. And you have to, in the first part is of breaking out of that is just acknowledging that like, Hey, like I'm just as likely to be biased and, and, uh, or brainwashed if you want to use that word as, as maybe somebody else. So just, like just understanding that is, is the first step to sort of, uh, really breaking out of the prison essentially and becoming a bit more, being able to look at things a bit more holistically. Um, in this day and age, that's, that's super cool. I really, really, you know, it seems like you're taking like, you, you, I'm sure, I mean, your community is obviously very like passionate. They all came out and voted for you in our, in our, in our yes. survey here. So they all, uh, they all definitely are, are fiercely yes, passionate. I just told them like, hi guys, there is a contest going on or something. And we came up. So I, I did, I, the way I do things, I didn't got them and said like, guys, you need to vote for me because we need to win. That's not how it works, like because that's not us. What I said was, guys, our name pop up. Uh, we are here. <laughs> if you guys think that we deserve the vote, then you are able to vote if you want. It's just that. And they're like, <laughs> go, yeah, vote, 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 vote. Because, but it's not, like I said, it's not, it's not directed. It's spontaneous mm -hmm. and it has to be so. Because if I program these people to do something for me, then I'm no better than the very own algorithms that I'm trying to escape from. I am just more of the same. So it's very hard nowadays, especially if you are like on a developing country. On a Brazil is kind of better, but there are there are worse than Brazil. But you you have to survive. Like I have a family, I have daughter, I have cats, I have a woman, I have a house. I have and, and I am the sole provider for my family. So uh, I, I, there are some luxuries that I cannot afford myself. So I have to balance all the time between my ideals and the necessity to live. And that it's yeah, amazing absolutely. that it's... we have been able to do so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, this is the type of thing where, you know, 10 years ago, this wouldn't have even been possible as a, as a career option, right? It being, being just a, a, like a, a content creator and, and it is a grind, right? It is a, it is a hustle being, uh, you know, being a, being a, you know, quote unquote, influencer, uh, content creator, it's, it's a lot more work than I think people would realize on the, from the outside, but, uh, but it is rewarding. It does give freedom. And it's nice to know that like, you know, it seems like you're the type of person where like, you just want to be, you want to be like creating value, right? You're not just here to chill things or to, like, you know, get people, make yeah. people get followers, get numbers, get dopamine hits because ooh, I got a, I got another retweet or something, but like, you're really trying to create value. You're really trying to, uh, instill you know really trying to help help people just better understand themselves and how they interact with the world and then almost using crypto and and, and the, the world of web3 as a as a vehicle for doing that which is super interesting so that's you've got me you've got me kind of hooked here i might <laughs> maybe I'll, you know so, you know where, you, where the stock the stock leads to when, when because people get this conclusion that you are that you are coming to and mostly when people understand what i'm really trying to do they like to say casta aren't you trying to do too much? Like, are you trying to fix the fix things? Are you really, are, are you actually trying to fix society problems? 
Like, are you kind of so, do you, do you think you are some kind of savior or something? And I say, no, guys, I am not, a, I'm not only that, but look, look, look how far we've got. You have someone that is actually trying to solve problems for everyone that takes this as a life motto. And you say, this guy is delusional. But on the next corner, you meet a guy and the guy say, my dream is to have three Lamborghinis, a Porsche and a private jet. And then you say, wow, ambitious guy. Yes, go for it, man. You deserve it. So what kind of dreams are we really putting on the stage in this society? We, we, mm -hmm. we applaud someone who wants to be part of a super ultra elite of ultra riches that makes money sitting on top of more money, but we discredit and we give little to people who think, no, I want to give my life to make something better or I want things to be better for more people than this today. And we think that is delusional. But if you want to engage in a society that is depleting our world, and that is bringing the world to the verge of conflict, be it political, geopolitical, macroeconomical, all the, all, all the, the symptoms that we, what we are doing is not sustainable, that we are not going to, to keep this rhythm, this pace for more 20, 30, 15 years, and something's going to break, and we applaud that. Every day we wake up and we go, yes, yes, pursue your Lambo, your Lambo should be your dream. But fixing things should not be your dream because if you are trying to fix things, then you are wrong. That that for me is is one of the greatest symptoms that we are really we are sick collectively. We are sick, a mm. sick world today. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. And I heard a statistic recently uh, out of the U.S. that it's something like a third of the population, the adult population in the U.S., is on some sort of antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications. And you look at the U.S. You're like, okay, this is just objectively the like the wealthiest, uh, most prosperous society in the history of the world, but you know a third of the people are under such anxiety or depression or, or mental uh, mental you know mental illness type uh, disorders that they need to be taking medications for it. Um, and it's it's just kind of like wait, there, there's something that doesn't that's not right here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. This shouldn't be. Isn't it like, odd? Yeah. Like this shouldn't be the case, right? Like yeah. we, it's, this goes against everything we've been taught. Where it's like, oh, you just, you know, you you go to school, you study hard, you get good grades, you get a good job, you make money, and then you're happy. And then it's, but it's like, okay, we've arrived there. But uh, or even with, I mean, I, I use, um, so I I'm I I turned about like I was in college when the 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 iPhone came out, the smartphone first came out. So I'm. Like I think 2007, 2008, I was about 23, 24. Like I just gotten out of college, so I, I use that as kind of like a like a uh, kind of like a demarcation line, like pre iPhone, post iPhone worlds, right? So I've I've lived yeah. in both, and you know, objectively, oh yeah, like my life is a lot more. There's a lot more conveniences that I have now because I have a smartphone, right? There's a lot of things that are just a lot easier, but then there's also just like so many ways in which I'm I feel like I'm a slave to this thing, like I'm I'm addicted to this thing. Like it's the first thing I like I, I first thing I do, you know, in the morning is like look at my phone, right? And it and, it, and everybody else is the same way. You go out to dinner and like you know all the families are just like staring at their phones, right? And like well, it's like how is is this really like improving society? Um, yeah. It, like I mean, yeah, things are more convenient, but it, it I, I don't know. I, I mean, it it feels like the the this is a very much double edged sword, right? So 
I think having somebody like you is like really focused on these first principles is just very refreshing, right? It's 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 like there's somebody right. who's at least taking this stuff seriously and like, hey guys, like let's 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 go back to the drawing board and just you know reassess like how does this all supposed to actually work? Um, anyway, not a question, but a rant. But yes, you know, but, you'll but be that, respond. That, that's that's techno philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I always joke right. with everyone that when people start talking to me, we always end up like going further because we are doing we are we are doing philosophy. We are thinking about things. Like you are just thinking, what are we doing to ourselves when we grab up the, the smartphones? Of course, it brings us convenience, and of course we are addicted to it. But there are also other aspects in which you just said that are very very interesting. Like we are more productive. If we have a smartphone, if you go back some decades, if you were like a businessman in in the 20s or the 30s, you are closing an overseas deal. Like you would send a letter or a telegram and you just had to wait. Like <laughs> you had to wait the whole week to, to see if the deal is being closed. And what you do during this week? No, you just wait. So we were forced to wait. And then we have to find out what to do with this time. Now, as we can have everything in instant, what we do as soon as we perform a task is go to the next task. So we are not, uh, we are not taking advantage of our free time to be happier. We are taking advantage of our free time to be more competitive. Mm. And this is not the fault of the North American mindset. I do not blame North Americans as people like to demonize their, their culture. I think that it goes deep in. It goes that we all are living in a global set of capitalist democracies, in quotes. Because mm -hmm. as we are driven by profit and profit or more value is acquired via competition, you always have to be more competitive. And if you will ha always have to be more competitive, then you always, uh, the, the most successful people will always take their extra time to be extra competitive. And that forces everyone to be more competitive. That's why we feel that even though we have more technology than ever, we are struggling to keep up and race more than ever. So these, these things were supposed to alleviate and give us more time not to take our time away and 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 that's fantastic that's what they are doing the more efficient we are the less free time we seem to have so there is really something fundamentally wrong not with politics like ah the if you are a right-wing person then all the blame of the world should be of the left-wingers but if you are a left-wing person then all of the blame of the world should be of the right-wingers I, I put the blame not on left or right wingers. Uh, I put the blame of something very, very, very serious that's happening with our society. I put the blame on the year of 1971 when we introduced the fiat world, when we cut the 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 the, the convertibility between the dollar and the and the and the gold. If you take that, there is there is an incredible, amazing site. This site is called "What the Fuck Happened." In, in 71 and it has all the <laughs> sort of statistics that what has been going on with the world since this year and there is one or two two graphs that summarize all since the year of 71 
the more productive we become, we do not get a corresponding increase on income. If you mm. go for 71, the more productive you became, then your income would go together. 71 fourth, this has a split. And we like we we as a whole, we are three times more productive, but our income remains mostly the same. And then you that's strange because if we are being more, more productive, then we are outputting more wealth. But if this wealth is not going back to the people who are producing the wealth, where the hell is that wealth going to? And there is another chart, and you can put those side by side, that it shows the difference in income between the top 0.01% of the world, of the North American ultra-rich elite, the top 1% and the bottom 20. And the motto is most of the wealth since 71 is going straight to the pocket of 0.01% of the most rich people. And this is a widening gap. This gap has been widening since 71, even if you have like prolonged uh, times of left-wing government. So even if you have like three or four series of left-wing governors, they are not able to shorten the gap because mm. it's not up to the right or the left. The mechanism of inflation, the mechanism of fiduciary money, of imaginary money, it, it, it allows for the construction of a system that extracts value from 99% of the population inside the hands of 1%. And there is absolutely nothing that we can do about it as long as we are inside the system, the system of imaginary money, of printing money. That's the case when like Ray Dalio talks about that in his theory of the end of the nations, that the world changing in order. You can see Yanis Varoufakis talking about that when he talks about the end of capitalism. These are all like brilliant uh, economic economists and philosophers. But I talk about this on my channel as well. So when, when I look at crypto, I see that crypto finally has tools that we as individuals can use these tools not to destroy the system as some cypherpunk old school may want. Like, yeah, let's destroy everything. Let's bring the government down. Anarchy rules. No, but I think that we can get the set of tools that are blockchain, crypto, perhaps a little bit of AI on top. Uh, would be nice. We get all these technologies together and we build systems so we can collective, collectively opt out of the system. The, you can't destroy the system if there is not an alternative system because we need systems. So it's, it's smarter to like, let's do something alternative so we can jump, opt out, then try to destroy what is already established. And that's what I like so much about crypto. And that's why I do the techno philosophy movement to invite people to think how can we build our way out of the system, not how can we destroy the system. Is there any examples within crypto as it currently exists today or, or Web3 or whatever you want to call it of that are maybe like early primitives of um, an actual like an alternative system, right? Um, I think maybe the easiest example might be Bitcoin. I mean, this is kind of like the, the elementary Bitcoin or worldview where it's like, all right, like screw the fiat system. We're just going to buy Bitcoin. But it, 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 I mean, they're I mean, they're 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 not like incorrect. Right. Uh, that Bitcoin does provide an alternative uh, sort of, you know, store of value, sort of alternative currency, alternative means of exchange, whatever. 
um, kind of a, a hedge against the fiat system, essentially. But are there other, you know, in, with what you've seen in maybe like Ethereum or, or some of these other ecosystems? I mean, I don't think any of this stuff is like shovel ready quite yet. But are what, what do you see as most promising toward like something that could be an alternative uh, opt out type of system? Yeah, sure. We have examples, but they are very primitive. Like we are just beginning. Bitcoin uh, is very interesting, but Bitcoin is not um, like a, a one-stop shop solution because Bitcoin is an is an is a is a economical alternative. Like yes, we want to have money, we want to be able to store and transact value, and we want to be able to do that with confidence, with availability. So it must it must work. It must be online. But we don't want this political setup, this economical setup, to be under the judge of a specific nation, a government, a state nation. So Bitcoin uh, really is able to, to fill this gap. But only Bitcoin is not a full solution because Bitcoin is not a political solution. So uh, Yanis Varoufax, I uh, just quoted him, he once did like a debate with a Bitcoiner in a live show. And the debate was that the Yanis Varoufax was going to argue that Bitcoin would never be money. And the guy would argue that Bitcoin, yes, Bitcoin can be money. They would be in debate. So I opened up the video saying, yes, let's see the guy that don't like Bitcoin getting smashed. Yeah. <laughs> and it was the opposite. I end up agreeing with Yanis Varoufax. Said, oh, my God. The guy is good, man. And he gave a, an example. He said, like, just imagine. Okay, let's give a bit of imagination. Imagine that Bitcoin has won. Yes, Bitcoin has defeated the fiduciary money. And all the countries in the world now use Bitcoin. We have the hyper-Bitcoinization of the world. Your treasury of your country is in Bitcoin. You pay taxes. You pay your coffee. You pay your car. Everything is Bitcoin. So what happens is that in such a setup, Governments don't have a printing machine. They cannot print money because you cannot print Bitcoin. So uh, a great catastrophe comes along in the terms of 29, for instance, like a pandemic. What most of the countries did when they were struck by the pandemic, they had to print money to acquire tests and beds and hospital resources, masks, vaccines, uh, the, the logistical response of the chaos that was being brought. So what would happen if your country got stuck or if your societal organization got stuck by a catastrophe and you had no means to print any more money? Then you would collapse. So just to say, let's kill the printing machine and hope everything will be better because we, have not more the, we, we don't have any more the ability to print money. This is delusional. This is childish. Because we have several issues that are solved and that actually save lives because you are able to print money. Because what is the problem with that? In the end, we abuse this system. So if you have a system that prints money, then you have economical incentives via game theory to corrupt the system. If you, if you control the printing, then of course you are going to take advantage of it. It's going to be in the form of laws and it's going to be all legalized. It's going to be, everything is going to be by the book. But it's, it's obvious 
If you are within the group that has the control of the machine that prints money, you will twist the game in your favor. It's inevitable. It's not the fault of the human beings that are there. You can kill the human beings that are there and another set of human beings will become just like them. Because we have the economical incentives to form such kind of human beings. So if we want to destroy the printing press of money, the printing, the money printing machine, we also have to offer an alternative political setup that if we are stuck by a catastrophe, perhaps then we can all vote and we can do like a dilution of all of our money into a new set of money so we can respond to this catastrophe. And then we can democratically agree to be diluted. So we perhaps we can have a printing machine that only gets in use if we democratically vote to bring the, the printing machine to use. So that, that different kinds of setup. Just to say, get Bitcoin and the world will be better for me, it's too childish. It's like daydreaming. You have really to think that we as a human, if we get in a world of 8 billion people and 10 billion people and 15 billion people, we need systems to organize ourselves or else we end up just killing and robbing and murdering each other. So just, just, just saying Bitcoin is the answer, for me it's not the answer. So if we go to the likes of Ethereum, not Ethereum itself, because Ethereum is just an implementation, but the idea of smart contracts. Bitcoin is not smart contract-like. Bitcoin is just a, an economical setup. Right now we have like ordinals and BRC20, which are like a twist of Bitcoin, but you do not have... Uh, like Turing complete programmability, which is the with what we really want to say. You cannot do full-fledged software programming in Bitcoin as you can in Ethereum and the likes that are smart contract platforms. If we can bring smart contract platforms to the table, then we can program the whole kind of societies. Like we have DAOs nowadays. DAOs, in my opinion, they kind of suck. I don't really like the way DAOs work. I think they are they they are they lack a they can, they lack a lot of sophistication, but they are the first examples. If you if you try to think that these are like self-sovereign digital societies, you just distribute your token and then people vote and they take decisions. And these decisions influence, for instance, the monetary policy of their own token. So, as Balaji says in the in his idea of the network states. There is a tendency and a possibility that in the future, blockchains will start to behave like self-sovereign digital nations, and that to be in a blockchain is not to like, oh, I am, I'm, hold, I'm holding the token of Ethereum. Like to be in Ethereum will be to be a citizen of the Ethereum, of the Ethereum nation, and that if these digital collectives they really evolve and they become smarter and they become more efficient, then perhaps they can start to compete with self-sovereign state nations. That's not something for the next year, for 24, but that's certainly something that we will start to see the first glimpses, if it is actually possible. In my opinion, in 5 to 15 years, we will start to talk a lot more about that. And that's how we can change things. Like, if you can opt out of your government and just leave off Ethereum, if that is possible, or leave of Avalanche, or Phantom, or Optimism, or anything, or Cardano, or Polkadot, I don't care who it is, but you have an alternative digital setup, then you can opt out. What can a government do if, like, 20%, 30% of its population opt out of their government? 
You see, it's not that the population are going to take up arms and to kill our leaders like the French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution. We are just going to say, yeah, government, I'm not obeying anymore. Okay, to the, to the extent that is possible, I'm going to refuse. That is the notion of civil disobedience. Like this was one of the factors that Gandhi uh, had put up to bring down the, 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 the colonial empire of the British. It's not they're going to kill all the British. We are just going to collectively disobey. And if enough people disobey, there is nothing that can be done. That's the end of the control. But in order to coordinate such an immense amount of people, we, you know, we cannot rely on more Gandhi. So we can do systems. We can do this via technological means. We can offer incentives and subsidies so people can opt out, and opt, uh, opt out of their governments and opt in on a digital alternative. Yeah, and I like it. I like this idea of the, you know, you you need an alternative way to, to create this alternative kind of stateless society, if you want to call it that, or like this digital community collective. You need a way of incentivizing everybody uh, without having like the authority and the power of the state, right? To to basically enforce the laws and punish bad guys and whatever. Um, and that's that's one of the things I've, I've always appreciated about Bitcoin is that, I mean, I less, it's less about the, Ooh, it's like an alternative money, but it's more of just with, if you just take like, you know, Bitcoin mining and the Bitcoin network, what, what, what's been constructed here is a network of just thousands of, of, uh, of like data centers basically around the world that are um, most, for the most part, like they're all autonomous. They're not necessarily like working for each other. They're not, there's no central figure who's controlling everything but they're all kind of playing by the same rules. And the way you compete is by, um, you know, you're, you're, you're basically like, can I play the game better than the other guy and get, you know, faster interconnection, lower electricity costs, uh, more efficient hardware, et cetera. And, uh, and they're all, but, but nobody cheats. Cause if you cheat, say like, I'm going to you know collaborate with my buddy over here, we're going to do a 51% attack and destroy the network. Well, then now all my investment is just of all this hardware that I bought is now worth nothing because the whole Bitcoin network collapsed. So, but I've always just found that that's like the beauty of the Bitcoin uh, economy is just that it's found a way to, to where everybody is, has wor- is, is more or less aligned to work toward the same goal with no central person who's punishing bad guys or is, is telling people what to do. But it's, it's, the, it's the token essentially that is what's, aligning the incentives and is, 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 is driving behavior, uh, in this collective direction. And it's almost like a very primitive version of what you're talking about here and what Balaji has been talking about with like, how could, how, what, what would it look like if you were to actually, people were to actually like opt out of a nation state, right? Say if, you know, I mean, the people that would do this type of thing are probably going to be, uh, you know, like more resourceful, like productive forward thinking people of like, Hey, we're all going to leave, some you know high tax state in the U.S. Say we're all going to leave California. That's the narrative. Everyone leaves California and goes to yeah. Texas, right? It's like, hey, we're all going to opt out. All the smart, all like the top five percent of people are going to all leave uh, California, and we're all going to go somewhere where there's no taxes, for example. Or we're going to go, you yeah. know, and then all of a sudden, like, what's going to happen to California? It's like, well, they're not going to have any tax revenue because all these super ri- these smart rich people are gone. So like, they have to find a way to compete to like get these people back. Um, and then you know, I don't know. Maybe this isn't that. If, I guess the difficulty I have with envisioning this is like, even if we exist as a digital collective, like I still exist physically someplace. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so like, yeah. like I'm, I'm a U.S. citizen. I'm a resident of Brazil. 
um like even if i don't like identify as either like i still like physically exist someplace right like it's hard to like decouple yourself like physically even if i want to yeah. identify as a, an ethereum citizen or something right but i, <laughs> no, I still physically exist in brazil but but it's super fun to think about like what could this actually work how like how could this actually work right but with with but with these technologies it's like you actually have a path forward where like like this could actually you know in five, 15 years time, like you're saying, like this could, this might not just be crazy talk. Like this could actually be a real thing. Sure. Yes. Because it, it, of course you have the, the physical aspect, you are the citizen of some place, but uh, in how, how, how can we answer that question? It's something that I think a lot about myself because if you are okay, we are going to have digital societies and they are going to be more efficient. They are going to be more competitive, but how do we solve the problem of our physical location? And there are a few possibilities. Perhaps one of the first that comes to my mind is that whenever you have uh, a society that is collapsed, it will mimic the organization of a digital society. So let's take, for instance, if you have a country, a fear, uh, let's not bring names, but like a fictional country. And its, its coin has, its, its, its native currency has hyperinflated, the government has shut down, but there is like a digital collective that already gathers most of the people of this country. So how, how, how far would it be, how, how, how hard would it be for this digital collective that it is already organized, it is already funded, to organize the takeover of the, physicals, of the physical setup? It's feasible, it's possible. But even before that happens, what I think is that countries, uh, physical nations, will adopt the best practices of digital nations. As we are doing right now, most of the developed nations, like more than 90% of the global, P, uh, the global GDP, is already researching CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currencies, because they understand, oh my God, that these digital collectives will be so much more efficient will be so much more streamlined. We cannot afford to be behind. So what I say sometimes as, about Bitcoin and that people that are really truly cypherpunks or that are really anarcho-capitalists and caps, they don't like this kind of thinking, but I think it's more reasonable. Also, I'm not uh, anarchist. I don't like the... I'm not a cypherpunk, by the way. I can We can talk about a, a, a lot more about that because... The cypherpunk movement is very misunderstood, but I'm not a cypherpunk in, in my heart, in my essence. So I think that Bitcoin is like uh, Noah's Ark, yeah, like the Ark of Noah. It's already there, ready to settle, but it is not going to settle because the government will not want people to leave, so they will be better in the future. So it's like uh, something that is always there, and it's, it's, a, it's a looming threat to all the governments. So my, the best place for Bitcoin is that it keeps worrying governments. It keeps worrying central banks so that they have to find ways to not lose people to Bitcoin or to lose, or to lose people to anarchy or to other setups. And we are on the brink of that. The world is very, very, very hot. Now. Like, like conflicts everywhere between countries, between fractions of the population, between ideas. The whole clash of the woke culture and the traditional culture, even not in America, but in the whole world itself, we have things like the, the immigration concerns in the whole Europe. 
Like we are really struggling to organize ourselves. We are struggling to, to keep working together. The globalization experiment is failing. And we are trying to revert to something, but we are in the middle of a lot of confusion. So if governments don't really do better, like really, they have to do better. We have to have to organize better. If they fail, then we, we will shift. But I think that they will do better before we shift or they will collapse. And I don't think that the established powers of the world, like the, the people that are really powerful in the world, I think that they are not stupid enough to let the world collapse into complete chaos. So I think that in the next decades, we will see a lot more of innovation in the way that we organize ourselves, even if it's not by digital means, but by traditional means as well. So, but that's my guess. We will have to wait and see. And in the meantime, keep philosophy. <laughs> yeah. Well, another another Balaji quote that, uh, from from his network state. I think it was from his network state uh, book, or the, at least the talks that he's done around that book. That I've, I found very very enlightening was he gave the analogy of of like a like a burning building. Like there's a if like a burning office building, right? You everything and he uses that as like that's like the the model of centralization. Like everything's kind of centralized. There's all these people, all these things that are all uh, inside this building. All of a sudden, there's a fire alarm. And then everybody runs out, uh, tries to flee the building. And then that's like the decentralization. Uh, and then everybody kind of like everyone's standing out on the street, kind of wondering what's going on. And everybody, people kind of like re-centralize into smaller little packets, like po like pockets of uh, of people trying to figure out like what's going on or, you know, is everybody okay, yeah. whatever. Uh, and, and that was kind of his example of like, okay, how do you, you know, if we get to this point where like, uh, we have this like massive centralized system that just can't like support itself any longer. And it has to sort of it like it, it implodes somehow. Uh, there'll be this, this like dispersion. Then there'll be kind of this re-centralization in these smaller pockets where people are able to kind of opt in to, you know, what type of, of, of society do I want to be a part of? And I think anyway, that, that was just kind of a helpful way of thinking about, about some of this, this whole, like this digital collective idea, right? It was, it was, um, but um, anyway, yes. uh, anyway, if you want to yeah. respond to that quick, I want to ask you some other like crypto specific questions as well. But no, if you want to, uh, no, we'll have your thoughts go. on that. Just give a quick brief. There is another another thinker that talks a little about like Balaji's example. That is Neil Ferguson, which is a, an economist as well. He has a book called The Square and the Tower, and it it reflects our tendency to we have to have a society then. We make an elite and form this elite within a tower in the center of the city, and the square is the where the rest of the people are. So people in the tower centralize stuff, and as they can see from above, they organize the things for everyone. But eventually the tower corrupts itself, and the tower is demolished by the square. What the square does when there is no more tower? It puts forth another tower. So because that's it. We we make towers, we centralize, then we destroy because we are satisfied, then we build a new tower, then we destroy it again. But the argument is that are the, the further iterations of the next towers, are they better or are they worse than mm. the tower that came before? If you give if you if you are very like kind-hearted and you go zooming out a lot, then you perhaps can think that it's becoming better because Let's go to medieval times. Let's go to the inquisitorial times. Let's go like to the period of the, the despots and Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great. So how many power did these institutions concentrate? Like one guy had power over more than a continent, spawning around one, one part of the globe. So 
if you look that far, then we can perhaps argue that the, the next towers that are being built after the previous towers are being destroyed, they are shorter. They are not as taller, not as tall as the towers that came before. And that gives me hope. Not that we'll get like full anarchy. Yes, Bitcoin destroys everything. And then we all get our hands together. We join ourselves in, a, in an anarchist utopia and everything will be good, better, bright. And we'll be happy. No, that that's to me, it's like, not makes sense. But perhaps we can build better towers in the next iterations with crypto. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. It's a little more pragmatic, uh, I think. It's like, how can we just, how can we keep incrementally improving, right? Okay, yeah. we've, we've gone from, you know, Genghis Khan controlling a third of the world. We've even gone from, you know, the British Empire controlling a third of the world. And now we've we've gotten to this point of, of at least where, you know, kind of global, uh, uh, you know, kind of globalist, like, like, or like, you know, capitalist democracy, liberal democracy is kind of the accepted yeah. norm, which has generally, you know, been positive for like human freedoms and human advancement. Um, but we seem to be kind of brushing up against the limits of that right now. Like, how can we build the next tower? How can we kind of improve upon what we've learned in this in, in these these recent towers to build a better tower next time around? Right. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a helpful way of thinking about it. <laughs> it's uh, optimistic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and and um, yeah, yeah. I want to ask a few just kind of crypto specific questions here before we 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 kind of round out. This yeah, this could easily be like a three hour uh, like <laughs> conversation here, but we're. Uh, didn't budget quite for that, but um, but I really wanted to get your thoughts on just kind of the state of the market right now, especially as we go into 2024. And um, you know, I'm really interested in. I mean, I've been following all these kind of end of the year predictions, and you know, everyone's got these lists and you know theses and whatever. And it it seems like there's a lot of bearishness toward Ethereum right now, and it it, it feels kind of like Ethereum's just sort of like lacking a narrative. And, you know, maybe some of these L2s haven't really delivered w w what people were expecting them to. Now, meanwhile, Solana is like ripping. Uh, the Bitcoin ecosystem is, is, has, was dormant for basically years. And now it's, there's all sorts of interesting things happening in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Um, but we just kind of love your, what, like, what do you find most interesting going into 2024 here? Yeah, great. Ethereum, Ethereum is very interesting because... What we got in 22, 22 was like a bear market year. So what we did in 22 was we are trying to identify the best narratives for when the bull market comes. And most of the holophotes and uh, the attention during the 22 was on the scalability solutions for Ethereum, was on the layer two solutions. So we are like, yes, Ethereum, Ethereum is never going to be cheap. Okay, we have to settle on that. In fact, Ethereum doesn't want to be cheap. Ethereum now is costly, it's slow, and that is good because block space in Ethereum becomes premium block space. And premium block space, it's economically secured. So it's nice. But people have to use the ecosystem. So we are going to achieve scalability via second layers. And we did not, until now, really <clears throat> tested second layers. They were popping up all over. Yes, Optimism, Arbitrum, ZK Sync, Polygon ZKVM, Aztec, Matis, uh, Scroll. And they are all like, ah, yeah, we have the solution. We are fast. We are cheap. We are fast. Come, come join us. And yes, people were not joining because there was not much happening until Arbitrum and Optimism set up the airdrop fever. 
because the airdrops of Arbitrum and Optimism triggered a whole new narrative that is, we have to find these new projects that no one has been looking into it and we have to fiddle with them and do all sorts of, of tinkering and do swaps and provide liquidity and stake and vote on governance because when they release their token, we will get bags of these tokens. And that set up the airdrop race. The airdrop race has been stressing the second layers. And that is good because we are seeing that some of them are lacking. For instance, we just finished the campaign of Interact with, with the, the Linear Voyage campaign, where we had to like to perform some tasks on Linear, like do a swap on Linear, provide liquidity on Linear. And what we have seen is that you had to pay like $7, $8 in gas fees on a second layer. And that is, that is not, that's not admissible. It, it should not work like that. We are just starting to test this stuff. And the very same thing that promotes you, like we are scalable, we are fast, we are second layer. And then you have to pay almost $10 to perform a swap. So as a scalability thesis, it is failing. Most of these second layers, when they are truly put up to the test, they are not able to maintain their promise. And if the second layer solution as a whole, not just linear, not just optimism, but if the second layer paradigm, the second layer approach, if that doesn't work, then Ethereum is in very bad shape. Because mm. Ethereum depends on the su success of second layers. That is that, that, that's included. It's why their next upgrade is going to be the EYP 4884, the dunk sharding protocol upgrade that aims to do what? It's not to make Ethereum cheaper. The next update for Ethereum is intended to make the second layers cheaper. So you, we are upgrading Ethereum so that we can like have 10x a reduction of fees on second layers. And Ethereum remains mostly the same. Because we all understand, if second layers are not a good idea, then the whole ecosystem of Ethereum is going to be in bad shape. And we would have to look at monolithical approaches or, or internally sharded approaches. So we have to look at things like Solana. We have to look at things like Near Protocol or even Radix that it is eternally in the laboratory. Perhaps one day we will actually see it finish it, but <laughs> it is, it's coming. Uh, it's interesting. Brazilians love Radix. We have, we have a, a great community in, of, of Brazilians that are... Oh, 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 they are stealing the token. They, they, they are in the breakfast, they are stealing the token, and they go to lunch, they are stealing the token. And I'm not a token chiller, but at least Hadix has a proposition that we want to solve the scalability problem without more blockchains. If you put it on a... Perhaps some of the audience here is not like tech-savvy. We can explain the idea of scalability. So because uh, really second layers... Are, are not that good much of idea because let's say you have a computer, okay? You are working on your computer, your laptop, and then you, you are doing a lot of work in your laptop and your laptop starts to get like slow. And you say, well, this is, this is slow. I have to get up. I have to, I have to upgrade. What can you do? You can like upgrade your CPU. You can put more memory, more RAM. You can like get a better HD. You can change the parts of your computer so it becomes faster. 
But what can you do if you already have the best parts available? There is no more way to upgrade your computer. So someone is coming to you and is going to say, oh, I have the solution. Uh, I will just give you another computer. And then you can work on both computers <laughs> at the same time. Oh, my God, that's brilliant. Then the work you were doing on one computer, now you can split that work in two. And if that's not enough, okay, we can put like five computers in your table. And you can work on five computers at the same time. That's what layer twos are doing. That is the philosophy of layer two. Mm. Like, just build another blockchain. Of course, yes, let's build another blockchain. So, uh, layer twos, they not only have to be fast, but you have to make all these computers work as one. We cannot ask you to work on five, on five computers with five keyboards, with five mouses at the same time. We have at least to provide an integration solution on which you can, with one screen, one keyboard, and one mouse, interact with 5, 10, 15, 20 computers. And that's what the Layer 0 solutions are trying to do, the omni-chain solutions. That's what guys like Layer 0 Labs, like ZetaChain, like Chainlink CCYP, that's what they are trying to do. So we have a lot of conditions to make the, 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 the tiering ecosystem as a whole work. This whole of notebooks that are being put on your table, they all have to be fast and cheap. And you also must have a way to interact with them without having to go on each one. Because that's not feasible. That's not, that's not enough. So if that isn't the best way, like orchestrating all of these blockchains, then I would look at guys like Solana, Nier, and Hadix, perhaps in this order, uh, of like most mature to most... Uh, uh, like starting solutions that yet have to finish their, their development. We do not know if they will work or not, but their strategy, their, their approach is I will, solve this, I will solve this problem without putting forth more and more blockchains. And if uh, it's super interesting. Next year, we'll see the more developments on that. But I will not say that Ethereum is dead. If, if they can figure it out, the layer two problem, then Ethereum can remain uh, a strong competitor. Yeah, it, it, it does kind of feel a bit like uh, in, in like 2019, you had a lot of this like Ethereum's dead narratives floating around. I think the price of the token was down to like, you know, $50 from from its all time high of, of, of like 300, 400 in the bull market. And it was kind of, I mean, I think I even like you know, paid for a dinner in Ethereum once and it was like paid like, you know, <laughs> it was like definitely yeah, kicking myself for that when it was five. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was my, that was like my Bitcoin pizza moment. Right. It was like, Oh shoot, shouldn't have done that. Um, but it was, there was a lot of just like, it was very much like in search of a narrative. They were kind of rolling out this like ETH is money narrative, which didn't really make a whole lot of sense. Uh, and it was kind of, it, so it's like, I guess the point is, is, is you can't really bet against Ethereum, but at the same time, like, the, the problems you're describing and the problems we've been seeing with, with these layer twos, it does seem to be like, you know, th there needs to be some, some significant work put in and some like thought put into yeah. maybe uh, like this stuff has to get executed properly. And now you, with Solana, you, you know, just looks like Solana has gotten over, you know, some of its, its performative issues from, from last year. Uh, maybe not Sam Fried's out of the picture and he's not liquidating people anymore. Uh, it's like maybe, you know, they seem to have gotten over some of those problems and like they're, you know, are they emerging as a real competitor to Ethereum? I mean, I think, I think the answer, I mean, it seems to I be like, so. yeah, they are. Right. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, whereas people, in, in... people didn't understood why Solana why Solana crashed because it, what was ah Solana always crashes Solana always always go offline and that and then Solana is bad like it's it's very primitive thinking Solana crashes Solana bad uga 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 it's it's not like that why 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 did Solana crash it because Solana refused to turn it, it's 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 fee system into an auction. That's why, because why Ethereum doesn't crash? Because when too many people want to use it, it raises the bar. It gets expensive. So you, you in order to not break and to not go offline, you just you just purge out people that don't have money. That's okay. That's easy. If you have a tri if you have a trilemma, a trilemma, I don't know how to say it in English, but uh, it's trilemma, a trilemma. Uh, trilemma, trilemma. Trilemma. You have the trilemma. So what does Ethereum opens open? What does Ethereum let go? Ethereum let go of scalability. So we we remain we remain online, but we get slow and we get costly. So we we don't we 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 give up on scaling. So we don't crash. Solana, on the other hand, does not give up on scalability. It still wants to perform low-cost transactions even when it's struggling. So eventually it crashes. So the difference between Ethereum and Solana is that they are willing to give up on different parts of the trilemma. And that's why Solana crashed, because it didn't raise the taxes. But Solana is doing all it can to resolve this problem without turning into an auction system like Ethereum. And the Fire Dancer upgrade will be a major upgrade in Solana, which will boost its CPS a lot. So it is, it is, a, it is a contentment. It, it not only it challenges the modular approach of Ethereum, but it challenges the this this kind of system that is extremely like privileged. Ah, if you want to to keep using, you have to pay more, and then in the end, we are excluding people that don't have money to pay this all of these gas fees. So Solana is really a challenge to to the way that Ethereum thinks and works and performs, and I think it's going it's going to be like a relevant player in the next year for sure. Solana and its ecosystem, right? The projects that are brewing inside Solana. That is, take a look at Gito, the, the, the airdrop that Gito done inside Solana that took everyone by surprise. Mm -hmm. Like, you did almost nothing there and you got 10k airdrop. People are going crazy with Solana right now. <laughs> Any other, um, maybe like bold or maybe like kind of controversial predictions that you might have going into 2024? Um, something that might <clears throat> go against kind of the, the party line, so to speak? Yes, I have. I have been say, saying that for more than a year now. Uh, as soon as FTX crashed, uh, FTX Alameda crashed, right after the Terra Luna crash, I said something back then. It was including on a Mercur I was still in Mercurius. It was in a Mercurius podcast. And I said, guys, you have to understand something. The, the market for people that are unwilling to cooperate with the government is going to shrink, okay? All our premises that the blockchain movement or the crypto revolution was to free us from the, from the grips of governments and from the mainstream society, it is not going to develop in this way. 
Because as crypto changes the world, the world is going to change crypto back. Crypto is not going to subjugate the whole world. The whole world. It's going to be adapted into the world. So what I said was, guys, we are going to see the emergence and we're going to see like the increasing in numbers of DeFi protocols that are up to regulation, to regulation, that are adherent to regulation. Because, oh, Casta, you're crazy, but DeFi is if you want to escape the government, is where we are hidden, it's where we like don't pay taxes and where we can escape everything. I said, no, guys, you don't understand. DeFi is more like functional. DeFi is more resilient than CeFi. Go back to 22. Who crashed? FTX, Alameda, Celsius, Voyager, BlockFi, DCG, Genesis in trouble. What, what's up with all these guys? They were private companies doing private operations in lending and borrowing of crypto. Who didn't crash? Ave and Uni. But they were also operating in the market. Why Avi didn't crash? And why Celsius, BlockFi, Voyager, Linear, uh, DCG, Genesis were in trouble? Because as they were centralized actors, they were all calling each other on the phone and doing all kinds of schemes with the money. Oh, yes, mm. give, me, give me that amount of that shit token. Then I give you that amount of dollars. Then you make me a borrow so I can be leveraged there. When you crossed the wallets of these guys, like it was a web tangling of borrowing and lending and the leverage that made absolutely no sense. And the idea that we had that, okay, I can give my money to Celsius and Celsius will be a master trader. They will beat the market because they are so genius. And then my profit, which is a fixed income profit, will come from their ability to beat the market. They are not able to beat the market. They were lousy traders. Some of the traders, well, I, I did a whole thread on Twitter about the brilliant trades that Alameda performed. When Do Kwan was buying, was buying Bitcoin to make his fund to protect the Terra Luna ecosystem, Alameda sold $1 billion in Bitcoin to Terra Luna and got paid in UST. That's the deal of the century. Like you sell one billion in Bitcoin for a shitty stable coin that had no fundamental structure to remain pegged. <laughs> and that these are the brilliant guys in which you are trusting your money to make more value and still pay you a fixed press set of income. That's 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 not working. But let's go to Ave. Ave is Ave, it's a smart contract. It doesn't matter if you have ten dollars, if you have one thousand dollars. Or if you have $1 million, you are all going to use the same smart contract. You are going to oblige by the same rules. The code is the law, and the law is the same for everyone. And that is the brilliance of DeFi. It allows for less corruption, far more or less corruption. You're not going to take a call for someone that is a private client and he has more money. Then you're going to let him assume more risk and leverage more. And then in the end, it makes a hole in your balance sheet and you go bankrupt because you have you're giving privileges to that, to that kind of operation. So the world will see that we have more to gain from decentralized finance, but not because we are going to go away from governments, but because we are removing middlemen. 
we are taking middlemen, managers and managers are out of the system and the system becomes more transparent and more resilient. And that is true for the traditional financial system. So we are going to see a merge between centralized and decentralized finance, where some centralized setups are going to adopt a decentralized infrastructure. But in order to be there, you, you have to do KYC, you have to take your photo, scan your driver's license, you have to signature something, your social security number will be there, and you have to understand that this is going to happen. It is inevitable. And I made this prediction, people were so mad at me <laughs> oh my god, Casta, oh no, you've been bought by the government. Tell us how much they are putting in your pocket to say that. I said, no, my god, I'm just looking at the future. And now we have solutions like Aviarc, for instance, which is a, an institutionalized branch of, of Avi. We have Uni with, with institutionalized solutions. We have all the CBDCs we have in Brazil. We have our, our Real Digital, our Drex, which is our tokenized currency, which will be built on a clone of Ethereum. Hyperledger Bezo, and they plan to integrate the blockchain of our national currency with the blockchain of Ethereum. You think that will not there, there, there will not have been the need to provide liquidity between those ecosystems? We're going to have bridges, we're going to have swaps, we're going to have cross-chain solutions. So we are going to see a future where crypto really, really dominates the world, but not in the way we idealize it. Not in an anarcho-capitalist utopia, but in something between in the middle. That's a polemic prediction that I've been making <laughs> for more than a, than a year now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I tend to agree. I mean, I, I I guess I personally probably have a few more like anarcho-capitalistic tendencies, but I'm I I'm pragmatic at the same time. Where it's like, okay, like KYC is not going to just disappear, right? Like we we are going to have to play in this system, and I do find, I mean. Little way over time here, but I would love to just get your thoughts a bit more on the Drex project because I do think personally, like you know, what they're what they're trying to do is, is if they can execute what they're saying that they they're going to try to execute this be this to me this becomes the most interesting implementation uh, of blockchain like anywhere in the world like hands down um, if they're able to actually do these things that you're just describing like we're, you know we're we're creating this they're, just, they're not just trying to create like. Uh, ooh, ooh, we're creating a stable coin. So, you know, we're creating this whole like asset tokenization environment. The whole Brazilian financial system is going to live on this uh, blockchain on the on Hyperledger Bazoo platform. And we're going to have these bridges into all these other like Ethereum compatible, you know, into Ethereum and other Ethereum compatible chains. And this, this almost becomes in my view, at least the, almost like the, the, the prototype of how these worlds of like TradFi and, and crypto like really merge together. Like this is kind of the clear, clearest like version I've seen of this in, 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 at least in development. So I'd love to get your thoughts just on that before we wrap up here. Sure. Uh, in, in my, I, I did a, a recently, I did a, like a 50 page deep dive study on CBDCs along with a partner of mine. It was a, a work we did for a financial firm in Brazil. And I had the chance to like study lots of CBDC projects, including our own. I had the chance to interview people that work in the Central Bank of Brazil and that are actually hands-on on the project. And my opinion is that Brazil is really at the forefront of innovation when we talk about institutionalization of blockchain and crypto technology. The guys at our Central Bank, they really understand the technology. 
Because sometimes you see like government people talking about crypto and you're like, oh my God, this guy doesn't have the slightest idea what he's talking about. <laughs> he, he, doesn't, he really doesn't understand anything. But if you see like uh, a, uh, someone from our central bank speaking or they're giving a lecture, a class, they have a YouTube channel, my God. You see that they really understand the technology. They understand blockchain, they understand crypto. And what they're trying to do is not bring a CBDC to like make a government stablecoin. Because yes, what is a CBDC? It's the stablecoin of your government. They are going further than that. They want the blockchain that that holds this national stablecoin is also a smart contract platform. And they want to do that in order to, to tokenize our economy. So what, what is one of the first, thing, first things that they want to tokenize? The bond market. That, that is so, so open-minded, in my opinion. Like the bond market is the, 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 the spine of the economy. It's the base of, of all of the economy of a country. It's the bond market. It's, it's where you control the interest rates. It's where you, you form the basis of the economy. Like the, the, who wants to have their money protected is going to the bond markets and buy future bonds and like, okay, now I am safe. Now I have fixed income. And this is the first thing that they want to tokenize. We are doing currently a pilot project and we are already experimenting with like tokenized uh, bond titles. But we do, not, we do not call it bond market. We have a, our own name. We call it like direct treasury. So you, you buy a title of a direct treasury. You call it Tesouro Direto in Portuguese. In Portuguese. It's like a, a, more, a more friendly name. <laughs> but the guys are really thinking forward. Like you, you can tokenize the housing market. We can tokenize automobile markets. And that, for me, uh, tells that they are really thinking ahead. And there is a common criticism. And especially in the North American uh, people, there is a lot of resentment and fear that these kind of uh, advancements can lead to a totalitarian state. Like, oh my God, now the government has access to all of the wallets. So if your government wants, they can like seize your money with the click of a mouse and you cannot hide your money from the government. And yes, that is one of the things that we have to be worried while we automate everything. But this is not fault of the blockchain. This is just the, the consequences of technological evolution because we tend to digitalize and to automatize everything, be it via blockchain, be it via private system. Like the Chinese have the concept of a, a digital yuan far before then the evolution of blockchains. People already pay things via digital way all the time there. So it's a tendency to digitalize and to automate. And what I always say to Brazilians is that they say, oh, Casta, then the government can, like, grab our money. Yes, the government can grab our money. But the government, Brazilian government, already grabbed our money in the color government, like in the, in the 90s, uh, end of 80s, as a, beginning of the 90s. Like, the guy said, okay, we are in problems, then all the savings of all Brazilians will be confiscated to the government. And we didn't have phones working in brazil like quite quite right so it's not just about the available tech it's about what the population is willing to accept that comes from the government 
Because when our government said in the 90s, we are going to confiscate everyone's savings, if you try to do that in France, for instance, you're going to have chaos and civil disorder. But we accepted it. We mm. got along with it. So it's not about technology. It's about what your government intends to do. And that's something we will see. I don't think that the Brazilian government would be able to try to put up that again and say, oh, it's like round two. We are going <laughs> to confiscate everyone's money again. I think it's not going to work, even if the tech allows the government to do so. Interesting. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it, right? Because all these things, all these these you know seizures and these these things can all exist independent of the the technology that they're based on, right? Like if even if it's like, hey, we're gonna go around to every single physical bank and just take all the money out, yeah. like that's that's you know you don't need technology, you don't need any any kind of fancy technology to do that, right? But it's just a matter of like, will people put up with it or will they will they not, right? And you know, will they get will people get fooled again into believing that maybe this, hey, like we gotta save society, so let's give all our money to government. Um, <laughs> It, you know, like it's it's a matter of what people are go, are willing to to put up with here. Um, so that's a really interesting way of putting it, and it does address some of these. I mean, because that that has been one of the main criticisms of of uh, of the Drex, uh, at least especially yeah. amongst you know, I think people who may not you know, I mean, I'm not I'm not saying it's it's a totally valid criticism, but like it, it people that don't really fully understand what it is to the extent that anybody understands what it actually is, um, which you know, I guess you ask yeah. ten different people, you get ten different answers, but. Um, but it is a valid criticism, I think. And, but to their credit, I think they have been working pretty diligently on, you know, uh, you know, trying out some different privacy solutions, you know, trying to comply with some of the national data protection laws and things of that nature. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, they still have to, you know, if, if a court orders that so-and-so's, you know, bank accounts are frozen, like they still have to be able to accommodate that. Right. And then, so the question is like, well, what's, what's going to, what's going to be the, the, what's going to prevent that that back door from being used um in an, in in a in a uh, an abusive manner perhaps so um but anyway Costa this has been a super fun conversation I really enjoyed this um really hope to do this again sometime um you know this could have easily gone on for another 90 minutes I suppose but really uh really fun and um this is giving me a lot to think about like I don't normally like leave a podcast interview with you know like I'm like wow, there's there's a lot. I'm gonna have to listen to this a few times just to kind of absorb everything. So, uh, very nicely done, and thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's a it's a pleasure to be here with you, and I hope we can chat again in the future. Amazing. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll be back next time.